14th chapter of St. Mark, 32nd verse, it's a little loud, Jack. And then find 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24. In seeking God in private devotions and private prayer, trying to find his will and bringing the needs of myself, of course, before the Lord and the needs of the congregation, asking God to share with me, to reveal unto me or speak to me the things that the one thing really that troubles us, what's, what's the matter with us? What's our trouble? Uh, why are we so prone to get disillusioned? Why are we so prone to get discouraged even though God is everywhere? Why are we so prone to be disobedient to God and think it's just such a simple thing that God doesn't pay any attention to it? And God continually speaks to us and loves us and I asked God to reveal to me. I knew it wasn't a secret. There must be some reason. And thinking perhaps that he might uncover some deep, hard, deep, long-lost secret, I was very much surprised when his voice spoke to me and reminded me of these scriptures. And he says, of all the mysteries, that might be revealed to my people, all the depth that they might be led into, all the wonders of the universe and the coming universe expounded and explained, except they get and keep what I have done for them, they will suffer under the same penalties of discouragement, despondency, despair, and disobedience. And so tonight I am forced with dealing with old familiar scriptures, perhaps that have become too familiar, and try to revive them and bring them alive into our hearts. The starting place of all of us was Calvary. And I realize that we say we haven't lost sight of Calvary. We refer back to it. I believe in a sense you're probably right. We haven't lost sight of it. But have we really lost the burden of what it meant? And what Jesus actually did for us that day when he walked into Gethsemane and on to Calvary to complete the plan that was to bridge the gap and gulf between God and man. And I found that God was right. I read the scriptures as 
cautiously and as prayerfully as I could read them. And then I read them again. And I read them again. And I was made to realize that the same scriptures that used to bring tears in my eyes and cares about displeasing my Jesus, the same care wasn't there anymore. Now, I'm being honest with you. And I want you to be honest with yourself and God. It's not that I disbelieved God. It's not that I thought less of Him. But somewhere, somehow, had got so involved with areas of my life, desirous, of course, of knowing the end time and the end time message. And searching some mysteries that I knew was hidden inside there and tried to read between the lines until my prayer was usually one that omitted being brought back to Gethsemane, being brought back to Calvary. And I want to say that this, that it took me a while in constant prayer, reiterating my failures and what God had done, for me to catch the burden that I had some 20 years ago. And God should not disappear in the midst of darkness and be placed on a shelf. His love should not disappear from us like this. Because when it does, it's easy to transgress His commandments. It's easy to be disobedient to Him. It's easy to be discouraged and despondent and despair. And it's so easy to disbelieve that he could ever do any more for us. So I think what I'm trying to say is God is some way trying to get us back to the place where the cross means as much anyway and probably more than it did that day when the heavy weight and load of sin lifted and we become a new creature in Christ. And I can remember when I used to read concerning the awful deeds that was perpetrated that day upon the body of my master, I could weep and cry. And I would say to myself, Lord, I don't want to ever be willfully disobedient to you because I feel, in a sense, what you felt that day when you took my place and did this all for me. And I don't want to do it. And I want to walk with courage. And I don't want to ever be disobedient to what you have to say to me. And then I find after a while, if we don't keep this, the burden that Jesus had, the burdened heart that he had, that if we don't keep this, it's easy to forget. And it's easy then to throw down his walk and walk on our own. And it's easy for us to just say, well, all right, so that is a law. It really doesn't matter. I'll take that up some other time. But if we could catch at least a little glimpse of him as he suffered there to make us powerful enough 
to be obedient to every facet of the law. I don't believe we could that easily throw it down and make it a separate part of us. I want to read these scriptures. 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. He saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. And he talked, and he taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be sore amazed. I want you to hang on to these words. He began to be sore amazed. That simply means astonished or beside himself. Just remember those words. And to be very burdened or very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful or burdened unto death or because of impending death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh, and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter unto temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, neither wished they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. He that betrayeth me is at hand. That's a graphic illustration of the torment that Jesus endured that day before he finally consented in the flesh to do what was necessary in order that we might have life and have it more abundantly. First Peter Second chapter, the 21st verse. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Now, if we're listening at all, or have any idea of all of what God is doing, let's listen to this, leading, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he reviled, reviled not again, leaving us an example. When he reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, leaving us an example. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, leaving us an example but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, 
that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now, because of this, returned into the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. Now I want to talk tonight, if you'll give me your attention undivided in your prayers and concern, about the burdened heart of Jesus. And the idea that he leaving us an example or being an example unto us, that we should follow in his steps. Our burden is something that's heavy or something that is full. The focus on this that I would like to leave is these words, as Jesus drank the cup filled with the dregs of every man's sin, the burden of all sins ever committed fell upon him. Let's go over that again. The burden, the weight, the fullness of all sin ever committed before, during that time, or after fell upon him. It was this indescribable burden that pressed him down. Now even the very name Gethsemane suggest a lesson for us that we might very well listen to this evening. Now in speaking these words to my heart, the Lord told me and gave me my lesson and told me to go slow and that I would lose some of you because I did, because some of you's mind wouldn't be where it ought to be. You'd be looking around, following individuals that they took their care of their kids. But he said, nevertheless, you go slow you try not to get too excited and try your best, your very best, to impress upon their hearts, those that are here, what it meant for Jesus to do what he did. Try your best to describe it in such a manner that we would not go home and easily forget, and that we'd be a little more cautious and being disobedient to him, unfair to him, and making an undesirable servant to him. Gethsemane simply means oil press. Location, of course, was east of Kidron and below the Mount of Olives, favorite resting and praying place for, place for Jesus, a garden where he went often. That's why Judas had to show them where he went because nobody knew but the inner circle of his disciples, which Judas was included in. And it was a restful, peaceful sort of a place. And I might add, still is. Still has the serenity there. And you could see as you walk up there, even with the hubbub of so many tourists going through there, there's something serene and calm yet about the Garden of Gethsemane and you sense a presence there that no wonder Jesus was able to commit himself. As I stood there, I wondered and I looked at the tree where they say was uh, about 2,000 years old or 3,000 years old and said this, of course, was the tree where Jesus prayed. And there was a sense of urgency about that as I felt as I stood there again acquainted with a man of Galilee that was willing 
and able to give himself in my place. And it had a sense of restfulness there, and Jesus went there often. But his name suggests something for us. It was oil press, used for the pressing of oil from the pulp or the flesh of olives. Now there was two types of presses used. The type that pounded the oil out of the olives and the screw type that put a continued pressure upon the, the olives. And Jesus, of course, in his human flesh endured both types of things as his flesh was hit by the fiery darts of the enemy just with a pounding type thing. And then eventually just continued pressure upon Jesus as he was somewhere, somehow, by that press was moving the flesh out from him and its desires insomuch that finally he was willing to say not my will but thy will be done. Now from these olives came three types of oil. Virgin oil which was 100% pure. Refined oil which had a small amount of flesh or pulp of the olive left in it and 60% pure. And sulfur oil have much flesh and much pulp in it which was 30% pure. And even in this, Jesus is speaking something that we ought to listen to. The purity of the oil depended on how the olives ripened and how they matured during their ripening. Now, oftentimes we think that when we come to maturity that we're just naturally going to be 100% everything. But I think we need to be careful what we bring of our flesh as we approach maturity. A lot of us feel like we've got till Jesus comes to mature ourselves. But let me throw something at you that the Lord threw at me. A lot of people, as far as fully maturing, are as fully matured right now as they are ever going to be. Think that over just a little bit. And if you're not careful, if you search your own life, and it may not be too late for some of us to change. But if we search our own life, there's things in there that we have never let go of. Although the pressure has been on us, and we have matured in a sense other directions, there are still things of the flesh that we're bringing into maturity. People set their patterns and set their habits and nothing, the power of the Holy Ghost, nor the ministry of the Word, has not been able to change those patterns or those habits. Now then, I want to read you something, and I'm sure it's not a mystery to any of you, and uh, I believe it's found in St. Matthew 13, 1 and 10, that speak concerning something just like this. And you don't have to turn to it if you don't want to. The same day Jesus went out of the house, and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. And some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell unto good ground, and this is what I want you to look at. 
It's not talking about the seed that didn't make it. It's not talking about the seed that sprung up and had no depth. It's not talking about that that sprung up among thorns and choked their life out. But it's talking about that it fell on good ground and brought forth fruit, and some brought forth a hundredfold, and some brought forth sixtyfold, and some brought forth thirtyfold. So you see, even with it all, and I think God is trying to reach us with that tonight, be sure and watch ourselves that we don't carry some of the habits and lust of the flesh into our maturity until we have matured as much as we're ever going to mature. I've looked around and been concerned about individuals that have been the same since I've been here for 25 years, or 17 years have been the same. Others have come in a little bit later on, and still areas in their life where they are disobedient to God, and disobedient to God's laws, and all the challenge and power of God and the Holy Ghost doesn't change them. It's not saying they're not Christians. It's not saying they do not bring forth some fruit. But it is saying if we're not careful, we're going to enter into God's kingdom without being 100% pure and holy as God had intended for us to be. And we'll enter in there with some regrets in our heart because we wasn't somewhere somehow able to realize that Jesus bore it all for us that he might make us holy as he is holy. It was not his intention that we should never be brought to fullness in 100%. Jesus himself is an example. Now, I, I, I ask the question, well, God, what does it take to be a 100% or a 100-fold Christian? What does it take? Anybody got any idea just kind of leaving it open and throwing out? What is your idea? What do you think it would take? for every one of us to enter into God's kingdom 100% pure. And I was astonished at the answer, and yet it's in the scripture. Uh, I, I so plain, I suppose, that almost anyone should have saw it. And it's in Matthew 19 and 29, and it says that everyone that hath forsaken houses, our brethren, our sisters, our father, our mother, our wife, our children, our lands, for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. This sounds to me like it has to be complete dedication to God. That brother, our sister, our mother, our father, our children, according to God's word, are not allowed to stand between us and our God. And yet, how many thousands of times do almost every one of us allow that to interfere with our prayer life, with our church attendance, with our motivation of God, with our fasting and with our prayers, and somewhere, somehow, the devil has deluded us enough to make us think we're going to dance 100 pure fold into the kingdom of God. Now, there is but one thing in everyday living that would motivate every one of us to forsake houses. That doesn't mean to just pack up your other handkerchief and leave. It simply means that your home really means nothing to you compared to God. 
And that says also, your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your lands, for my name's sake. In other words, God has to be there even before our children. And let me say this, I firmly believe that if some way we could catch the burden that Jesus caught and place God before our children, we wouldn't have as many problems in our life and in our home as we do. I think somewhere or somehow if we could put our God before our husband, there wouldn't be as much trouble in the home as there is. Or before our wife, and there wouldn't be as much trouble in the home as there is. In other words, I feel full dedication and I think God's Word backs me up would assure us of something that we have never experienced as God's children. And that's laying it all on the altar and say, God, here it is. Now, if we're not careful, all of us will come right up and say, well, I've done that and I challenge that. I've said it time and time again and yet I find some motivations in my life as far as giving it all and putting it before everything else. And yet, try to say, if we're going into the kingdom of God and receive a hundredfold, this is absolutely necessary. But it can never be accomplished. And we can never be able to do it until we catch the burden that was on the heart of Jesus that day as he took our place in Gethsemane and on the cross. Jesus, of course, was 100%. Paul, of course, sold out everything. Even his education, he didn't put it down, but he said it doesn't mean anything to me. Could have been a, a chief member of the Sanhedrin, and that didn't mean anything to him. Left his house, left his land, left whatever it took in order to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The 120 on the day of Pentecost put it all down and counted it all as naught as they moved the gospel every place they went. They had a phrase and caught a phrase the burden of Jesus that day on Gethsemane. Now I told you to take notice of the verse I believe where it says and Jesus began to be sore amazed. In other words, Jesus began to be astonished are beside himself. Now if we're really interested in trying to get some feeling of how Jesus felt that day, try this. What made him take this sudden change in his life? Jesus had always been the master of every situation. Never any place else since or before, have you found such a phrase and such a word spoken concerning our Master? And yet the Bible says when he entered into Gethsemane, there was something happened to him and he becomes astonished as he stood there in astonishment as if to say, what's happening to me? And then he become beside himself uh, with, with sorrow and burden down. And as if to say, I wonder what's happening to me. And what was really happening was this Christ of ours, for the first time, was going to have to face the fact that every human being has faced from the time he's born and all of us will face 
we will have to die. And death is a terror. Death is not a friend. Death is our enemy. And we will be afraid of death. The only thing that can calm us in that storm is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to know that he conquered it all. But the desire of human flesh to live. And I ask myself, was it necessary for Jesus to be subjected to this? Wasn't it torture enough for him to be hung on the cross? But yet everything screams out that it was. Why? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be subjected to such cruel mental torture? You see, we spoke often that physical torture is nothing cannot hold a candle to mental torture. And mental torture is actually what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. And because he endured the mental torture, he was able to endure the physical torture. The greatest burden placed upon the church of the living God today is not the cat of nine tails and the threat of being burned at the stake. That is that mental pressure of the powers of evil everywhere. And I'll guarantee you this, that if somewhere, somehow we can claim victory over this, and I don't know what we'll have to do, I don't know whether we'll be called on to die, or to suffer, and if we can have victory as God's people over this, a physical torment will mean nothing to us, because we will have said, not my will, but thy will be done. But there were some reasons, when God looks at his creation, and he looks at you, now he desires when he sees you, to see a reflection of himself. That's why he's going to be disappointed in some of us because he's not going to see the pureness of 100% or 100-fold in some of us. That might sound strange, but it's still gospel. And it's still something you and I need to uh, think about in recognition of what we are going to face. We hear him say one time, and we need to look at it, be ye holy, for I am holy. That's quite a demand, isn't it? In fact, that still has a bitter taste in our mouth as we hear him say, Be ye holy, Brother Doug, Brother Paul, Brother Tick, Be ye holy, as I am holy. That is a command. And yet we stand there and look at ourselves and say, how can this be? How in God's name am I ever going to be holy? Now this is what causes the backsliding of the majority of individuals that come to Christ. It's simply because we measure ourselves by ourselves instead of amazing ourselves at a love, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness and for Christ, who with a burdened heart crushed low for the sins in the whole world and the fact that He had to die a horrible death, what most of us don't realize is that Jesus knew exactly the terror and the torment of the death that He was going to face. He knew what it was going to bring him, and he was afraid. The man Jesus, and we need to look at him, let's look at him now. He was miraculously conceived, but he was born as all flesh is born. 
He lived in a sinful world. He felt the natural pain, the hunger, the thirst, and was tempted in all points as we, and yet without sin. Now, do you for one moment think that was easy? Do you for one moment, if you do, then I suspect there's something wrong with your thinking. Of course, Jesus was flesh as we are flesh. He lived under the same tormenting lustfulness of the flesh that came to torment him, even as we was tempted in every sort of temptation, and yet he was without sin. It had to be. This was what our Christ 2,000 years ago was enduring so he could reach down to the 20th century at the First Apostolic Church in Rosiclare and tell the saints of God that you can be holy because he is holy. It's hard preaching. But then when you get to the basis of it, it ought to be. Because this is the one thing. If it can some way be fertilized and take root in a heart, this is the one thing that can put the devil in constant defeat every day and every hour. If some way we could realize the terribleness of that hour and recognize the hurt and the torture of this Jesus who was crucified only because he loved too much, it would be harder for us to idly place him off on a shelf and continue to do as we have always done. I don't believe we could do it. That's why I say we haven't fully realized who he is, what he did, what the element of his suffering was. Uh, if we did, we wouldn't treat him that way. We treat him worse sometimes than our own people. And that's a fleshly love that we have for them. And we profess a spiritual love which should, should supersede all fleshly love. And yet we treat him worse. And we do our own loved ones. Treat him worse sometimes than we would our own enemies in the flesh. Amen, Brother Hoskall. We certainly do because we say, Oh, he's a God of mercy. He'll forgive me. But that's not the point. He will. And look what you're doing to him. Look how he hurts while you're doing your thing and going your way and being disobedient to him. Look what it's doing to your God who suffered for you that day and took your place on the cross of Calvary. Look how it tears him up. Oh, but he's God, yes, but he feels. And he hurts. And he's concerned. And I think he cries. And I think he longs. A loneliness that comes to you and I. And a loved one goes someplace. Our brother, our sister, our, our family, our friends. And one of your children goes someplace. And the longing, emptiness you have in your stomach. And in your heart. How do you think God feels? When you walk away from his house. And take what he has put within you with the power of the Holy Spirit and turn around and walk away from him. How do you think he feels? In other words, I think what I'm trying to say is how can we do that to Jesus? You see, we really don't know what we're doing. The devil keeps us from seeing and feeling. I know he does. And he will tonight from you, if he can at all. He keeps you from feeling and some way knowing the burden Jesus carried that day for you. 
And Gethsemane as it was with all its awfulness. I stood there and it was a peaceful, serene place. And that it was, but for my Lord and my Master and my Savior, it was a place of supreme dedication where He had to walk out fully committed. And every one of us ought to have a Gethsemane in our life beginning tonight. And we walk out of here fully committed to God and all of our wrong ways and doings and illnesses and failures would be placed under the blood of Jesus. And finally we'd make uh, some type of, uh, of a promise to Him that God make me able to see what He's doing to you and I'll never do it again. If you really love Him, if you really care for Him, it'll begin to dig down in your heart and you'll begin to feel some sorrow and repentance of what you're doing to the Jesus of Nazareth who is holy. Christ a union of divinity and humanity left us without an excuse. What he did took every excuse we had because here's what we'll say. And here's what we are saying. I hear it. How can God know how I feel? <laughs> we forgot Gethsemane, haven't we? We forgot Calvary, haven't we? Because you see at Calvary, he was acting totally human. The divinity that might have indwelt him was not used that day as he was totally human in Gethsemane and totally human on the cross. And if we're not careful, we'll say, well, if God had a body like mine and lived in my environment with my problems, would he still be holy? And my answer, according to the Bible, is yes, yes, a thousand times yes. He was, he is now, and he forever will be holy. And he endured the same afflictions, lived in the same world, and had much more to endure than you. And he still retained that holiness that he had at the beginning. So you see, every excuse was taken away. He was victorious over the greatest, greater obstacles than you and I will ever face. And he saw the unholiness of man. I think he sees it tonight and he's burdened. I wonder if Christ can transform unholiness to holiness. Well, he not only is able, but he desires to make that transformation in you. Jesus didn't come into this world to prove that God in a fleshly body could be holy in this world. That was not His primary purpose. Although that takes away one of our excuses. But He came especially and endured the shame and the wickedness and the sadistic hands of man perpetrating those sadistic acts upon Him. As he endured the shame and the agony and the pain of Gethsemane in the cross, he did it especially that he might someday share his holiness with you and I tonight. He wants to. You say, but can he? Well, he shared his holiness with Simon Peter. Transferred that individual from a coward into an apostle. 
How about Matthew took him from the life of a hated tax collector and made him write a gospel? How about Saul of Tarsus as he took him and transformed him from a church destroyer to a church builder? How about the 120 in the upper room that was meek and despairing and trembling? A band of people and he transformed them to a strong band of people. How did he do it? And the same Holy Ghost that you and I have endued within us tonight. And if they were transformed into God's holiness, even so are we tonight if we can stand on it. Hallelujah. Three years, Jesus lived in close contact with 12 ordinary men. In the same situations, he was victorious, they were defeated. He was unshakable. They were driven like the waves of the sea. What was the difference? What makes the difference? The difference was actually God's life. God's life. And the desire of Jesus was to make his disciples and us partakers of his life and spirit. We need to understand the union of God and man. And that's what God is trying to do, make a union. On one hand, Christ gave his life for us. On the other hand, he had to be willing to take our nature. Our nature. And this he did at Gethsemane. As he drank our bitter cup. That we might share his holiness. I wonder if we ever stop to think what was the nature of this sacrificed lamb of ours. I'll tell you what. Some of you people say amen while you wouldn't go to sleep. It's easy. Amen. You're going to let me just fight this by myself? It's something true and it's good and I feel like I'm having a hard time really reaching you. But God challenged me with this and he wouldn't let me get away with it. And I'm going to drop it right in your lap, right in your doorstep. And whatever you do with it is up to you. But you stay with me, will you? What was the nature? He wasn't an ordinary hero. No one else would or could drink our cup of sin and death. That we may drink of his cup. You see, he drank our cup of sin and death. That we might drink of his, which was life and holiness. Let's take another look at him. Okay? Let's watch him as he was calm and serene. The master of every situation. As a lad of twelve, he stood without fear, expounding the wisdom that never before and has yet to be equal. After forty days fasting in the wilderness with beasts and tempters, as his companions, he emerged more than a conqueror. He had been brought face to face with every human need. Disease was subject to his power. Oh God. Do we really believe that tonight? Do we? You see, he is, has, by his death, burial, and resurrection, and the power of the Holy Ghost, transferred his holiness to us. He drank our cup of sin and death that we might drink his cup of life and that everlasting. And the disease was subject to his power. Demons had to flee at the sound of his voice. When he was mocked and ridiculed, he went on his way still doing good. 
He didn't have time to mess with that type of people. The kingdom was more important than dealing with those people that tried to put him aside. And yet we take time out every day to deal with people and try to deal with them as they ridicule us. The kingdom is far more important than those little demonic forces coming from people that's trying to tear you down and the church down. That has nothing good to say about anybody and the noise maligning somebody for their actions or their failures to act. We simply do not have time to deal with those Christians he went on his way of course there was disease that needed to be healed and demons needed to be cast out and the life of Christ needed to be dealt with humanity and he had no time to deal with those things that were nitpicking and it might do us good if we'd focus the center of our attention on Jesus, His kingdom, His message, the disease and the dying and the undone and those that need the mercy of God. And quit wasting our time and our prayer time and our fasting time and our life on trying to deal with such things as that. Because the kingdom is before us and the world is behind us and we have Jesus to meet someday. Hallelujah. His courage was reflected through his suffering. I'm wondering sometimes when we speak of courage, courage has never been reflected through anything but self-discipline and suffering. If we ever intend to be courageous, we have to do it through suffering. There was never a hero got a purple heart or a medal, but what he didn't get it because he suffered and endangered his life for the life of somebody else. Jesus was always doing that. And if he shared his holiness with us and left us as an example to follow, why should we question as to the fact that it is alien to us? Of course, it is not. It is within our grasp to have. But we're never going to have it until some way in our life we can get the burden that Jesus had. It must be. You notice again the scripture where he was astonished and beside himself. What brought that burden, the agony, to Gethsemane? Let's look at him now in another fashion. We've got to see this matchless Son of God. We've got to see the one with all power in heaven and earth, ready to bow beneath every sin that is known to man. Picture him. If you can as he walks into that peaceful, serene garden of Gethsemane with his three trusted disciples. And as he walks into there, something crushing, like a heavy weight, falls on his shoulders. And he stands astonished and bewildered and beside himself. A man that has never felt this before never knew what it was like, was always able to cope with every situation. And yet, here he stands, astonished. Weight 
upon those shoulders of his far greater than the cross that was eventually going to be placed there. Scientists have now come to the conclusion that it was not the sleeplessness and the hours that he didn't get to sleep. Neither was it the cruelty heaped upon him and the stripes that was placed upon his back that rendered him so weak in so much that he fell under the heavy load. But it was actually Gethsemane where he prayed until blood emitted from his skin. And they say man has never known a weakness like this until he's known the disease they called hematidosis. They say this. They used to scoff at it and say man could never do this called a Bible alarm. And now medical science has discovered that it can be done and no human weakness has ever paralleled a human weakness of a man in such agony and torment and mental oppression that this happens and rendered him weak because that burden that he had on his shoulders part of it was mine part of it was yours was driving him to his knees three times some say three hours he wrestled with that oppressive force of mental torment, knowing all the time that he had to die. His spiritual strength, the horror and the great burden settles over his soul. Never. Before had he ever met a foe like this one. Your Jesus is fighting for your sanity there in Gethsemane. He's fighting for your depression and oppressions in Gethsemane. He's fighting for your doubts and fears. He's crushed with a weight of sin and a load of it. And his disciples noticed his troubled spirit had never seen Jesus, their master, anything but a master over every situation. And now even Jesus himself says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. That's following. As he goes a few yards farther, and listen as he prays, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He's saying, God, I know that in your power there must be some other way. That God had decreed that it would take the blood, the precious blood, the sacrificed blood of one precious and pure, and the blood of bulls and goats wouldn't do it. And Jesus was reminded as angels ministered to him that this was the only way that he could save the saints. And the first apostolic church in Rosicare asked for him to shed his blood. And he said, not my will, but thy will be done as he rose. My God, saints, can't you see how far we've slipped? 
if some of us had ever been there at all. On one hand, there was a will of the Spirit, a desire to carry out the plan of redemption. This force was strong. But what do we fail to realize? That there, as tempter and tormentor, was the same flesh you and I live in. And the same corpus to bring the same doubts and fears to his mind. And say it's foolish for one man to die that everybody else might live. The horror of the hour, Jesus prayed that it pass, and yet a giant hand reaches down from heaven, and there in that cup was the sins of all humanity. We might do well, we'd consider the contents of that cup that even God Almighty shrank back from. Jesus Christ, astonished beside himself as he staggered as he looked at it. Without exception, every sin of all ages was laid on him. Him who knew no sin. There was the public sins and the private sins and the hidden sins. There was the sins of royalty of kings and queens and princesses and the sins of the peasants and the servants. Sins of the lowest criminal up to the sins of the self-righteous. Peter's sins. Sins of Judas Iscariot. And in that cup was not only their sins, but our sins. Yours and mine. As he struggled, and his holy lips, who had not been defiled in any way, and his holy body, which had not sinned, was going to be subjected to that. I wonder if we can understand that. I'm going to get through in about an hour. difficult for our mind to grasp the full extent of the wickedness and shame, but we can come real close. Picture a Christian home where the love of God is prevalent. Never any nasty words, filthy conversations, anything. It's a good Christian home. Then you picture a worldly, foul-mouthed individual coming to the home, contaminating the atmosphere with his profanity and indecent acts. I don't know if you've experienced it or not, but I have. There's sickening disgust. It makes me want to vomit. All right. If then we sinful by nature shrink from this type of a situation, think what agony. Our Jesus in his holiness must have endured when the filth of the whole world all of mankind is placed upon his sinless shoulders. 
There was no power in heaven. No power on earth. Or no power in hell that could have brought our precious Savior to Gethsemane. But sin. The loathfulness of sin that made Jesus shrink. But because of His love for humanity, you and I who really don't know how to return it, don't even hardly know how to receive it. He was willing to yield the flesh over to the will of the Spirit. Say yes. I'll drink it. Love motivated Jesus to drink man's iniquities and destroy them. I wonder how that works. Right, real simple. Medical science discovered as we try to close that human blood doesn't have the power to combat diphtheria. But a certain kind of horse, in that certain kind of horse, is antibodies in the blood which are capable of destroying diphtheria germ. So when the diphtheria germ is in, injected in the blood of this horse, it becomes sick. Not with its own sickness, but because it has taken a human ailment into its bloodstream. Then, the blood of the horse destroys the bacteria germ and produces an antitoxin. It is this serum which has been used in the prevention of diphtheria. Now what an analogy to the blood of Jesus. Humanity was sick with sin. The blood of no sacrificial offering could destroy the germ of sin. Blood of bulls and goats was not the answer. But Jesus, through love, offered his body and drank the germ of sin. The germ was destroyed and a marvelous serum was produced. For those who are willing to be inoculated, there's a glorious victory over the disease of sin. Took upon him his own self the frailties and weakness of all humanity. And the germ of sin entered into his body. And he produced a serum, an antitoxin, the power of the Holy Ghost, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would take away from me the sin and the evil. My body produces. If tonight...